0: Fans and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell.
1: And I'm Alex Ruiz. And as ever, we are here to brighten your days, anger your souls. And we're not telling you how to live your lives this episode. That'll be next episode. That was last episode. I really got to rejigger this entire intro. Andy, how are you today?
0: I'm doing peachy, Alex. <laughs> Uh. no. And I do agree. We're still we're still in the uh, this is episode 103. So we're still new in the back to back format we've been doing recently. But what hasn't changed is that we like to spend a few minutes just talking about whatever old thing enters our pretty little head. Weed out some of the douchebags who might be listening. If you're listening, I doubt you're a douchebag because you've kept listening. And Alex, we could talk about how Tucker Carlson's been fired from Fox News, kind of a update from our last douchebag buffer. We could talk about um, any myriad of things going on in the comic book world, but you and I got on a tangent last night,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and this might end up becoming a future topic for you. You stated
0: almost certainly,
1: but we watched a um, we watched a movie. Last night, you and I
0: we watched Terrifier Two, one of the goriest films I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, and here's the thing: like Andy talked about the terror, the Terrifier series when he talked about slashers. That's right. Uh, some time ago, and we we sat down and watched the first one a number of months ago, and we watched the second one last night. And here's the thing: Terrifier Two is really good. I think.
0: Terrifier <laughs> 2 is really well done with some crucial scripting problems, in my opinion.
1: Well, and, and the first one was the most the best new slasher that I have seen in a very long time. Yeah. And it was original. It was. I, I was I said this to you last night. I, I said um I've seen every slasher. Not literally every slasher, but effectively every slasher. Yeah. I've seen You know, all the Halloweens minus um, a couple of the newest ones. I've seen, I think, all of the... Friday the Thirteenth, except for that like 2009 reboot one. Sure. Um, I've seen every Nightmare on Elm Street. I've seen, including the reboots. I've seen pretty much every Chucky movie except for the Mark Hamill voiced remake and the TV series. Sure. Um, I, it's it's. I, I've seen all the slashers. You're a student of this genre. And I could not predict Terrifier 1. There were kills in there, not just the one, if you've seen it, not just that kill, um, but also, like, just, just some really original, unpredictable stuff. Yeah. And I and I loved it. And I watched the second one, and I just kind of went, okay, I've got time for this. They're introducing some stuff. Um, I've got time for it, but it is clearly th- th- this was my take on it. It was clearly setting up a franchise
0: right which led us into just a conversation about horror franchises and the state of modern horror and then like kind of tracking rising and falling in horror you're right we're, we're most certainly this might be my next love just as a little preview but we talked for like a solid hour after we watched this movie about horror as a medium and and that usually is the mark of something good yeah
1: there's something there
0: there's something there yeah i don't want to
1: take too much away from a future conversation but it is interesting the very recent era of horror that we've entered into because you have like of of movies we've watched recently um i obviously i didn't watch hereditary with you i watched that separately that's a movie that fucked you up very deeply deeply um we watched we watched X together We
0: watched X We, we watched, watched Pearl We
1: watched Pearl separately. I really want to watch Maxine when it comes out yeah uh, these are all very recent horror movies. Uh, you and I got into a debate as to whether or not midsummer qualifies as a horror movie. I don't really think so. you definitely do.
0: I think it does because I think cult not lower C cult but like capital C like the organization cult horror is a kind of horror
1: yeah. As we're speaking, uh, Evil Dead Rise, or Evil Dead Rises? Evil Dead Rise. Evil Dead Rise um, just had its theatrical release, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And I saw the last Evil Dead... I don't even want to say... Is is it a reboot? Is it just a continuation? I think it's just titled Evil Dead. That
0: one was really unclear. It was kind of a pseudo-reboot, but could function as... Evil Dead 4, if it wanted to.
1: Yeah, it's like a soft reboot. Yeah. Which is funny, because that makes it, what, the third or fourth soft reboot of Evil Dead? Indeed. Um. So, you know, there is that. And, and I, I really want to watch Evil Dead Rises, by all accounts. It is excellent. We're in a really interesting period of horror, because I remember when the draw of horror was that it was schlocky and
0: bad. Sure. And I remember when horror was just straight up like not very exciting because it was always a reboot of something else or just like a a very unoriginal, gritty, like kind of we're figuring it out mess. So I, I mean, yeah, the basis of what I want to talk about in a future episode is we are in a horror boom and tracking what the horror boom is. But in our talk last night... I, I do want to share this. You you came up with a pretty brilliant parallel. <laughs> we were looking at three people who I think most most film people would agree are like the three big horror directors of the moment. And
1: we've literally in this conversation, we've discussed their movies. Yeah,
0: we've got Ari Aster, creator of Hereditary and Midsummer. Yeah. Ty West, who did X and Pearl. Yeah. And, and soon-to-be
1: Maxine. And
0: soon-to-be Maxine, and then Damien Leone, who has done Terrifier 1 and 2.
1: Yeah. And the comparison that I made was... Because we were talking about kind of the history, like, these things in context of history. And the the statement that I made was that Ari Aster feels like John Carpenter. mm mm-hmm. uh, In that he... he he John Carpenter never made a sequel to Halloween. God, John Carpenter, um, I think he co wrote on Halloween 2. Um, uh, he didn't even direct it, and he did the music for the new, uh, through the new Halloween trilogy. Other than that, he stepped away from it. He was very much about, like, let me just do this one thing and kind of move on. John Carpenter. It sounds pretentious, but John Carpenter was about the art. Yeah. And that feels like Ari Aster, who hasn't done a single sequel.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and all of these films are, are very well done to one degree or another, but I think Ari Aster is definitely the one who is, like, trying to make a horror film win an Oscar more yeah. than any other director right now.
1: Yeah. Damien Leone feels like 80s Wes Craven. Like, the, your Nightmare on Elm Street era Wes Craven. Your Hills Have Eyes Wes Craven. your Wes Craven who's going to, like, disturb you.
0: Yeah.
1: And we'll make you think some, and we'll grip you some with interesting characters or some plot lines, but at the end of the day, he wants to give you a horror experience that touches you physically. Sure. Um, and then, <laughs> this was, is this was the key point... Um, Ty West feels like 90s Wes Craven, in and I'm talking Scream-era Wes Craven, a Wes Craven who is going to give you all the permutations that you have of a familiar horror trope, but he's going to make you think and feel shit about these characters. It's much more character-driven. It's much more character-centric, and it's um, it just fucking hits on deep thoughts about sex and about... Um, The horror of human bodies going through really, really rough shit. And it's psychological and it's like deeply demented and tied into real dark places that ordinary humans might go to.
0: So really what we're saying is we need to do a love on Wes Craven because we've talked about John Carpenter. Yes. Yes, we have. (laughs) I I would not be mad about this. I love me some Wes Craven. There you go. Our slow transition into this being a horror movie podcast. Uh, I like music
1: shit way too much for that to happen. That's
0: fair. And speaking of music shit... Moving into our actual topics for the episode, and and if you're a new listener, every episode one of us talks about something we love, the other talks about something we hate. We used to do relationship questions, now that's every other episode, and Alex, you want to finally talk about some core music shit that you love. That's right. So, uh,
1: I always like starting with a question, and my question going into this dear boy is somewhat vague. I want you to point me here and now in this conversation uh, and later in the drop that I'm going to force you to put down for the people to listen to, uh, the song or riff or solo that immediately jumps to mind for you as the quintessential tone of an electric guitar. I have one. If you need it, I can do it first, but I want your knee jerk. What's the first riff or solo or line that you hear with electric guitar?
0: Hmm... See, you are the music buff, so I like I know this in my head. I don't think I remember the song, but just the
1: What the fuck was that, Andy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um shit now see i don't know the song okay i'm probably gonna cut this and come up with a different answer now
1: you're leaving in that riff or at least putting it at the end of the episode
0: fair enough <laughs> see in just my own personal experience i'm trying to think of like the first stuff i ever heard which like the first rock album i was ever like given and conscious to listen to was detroit rock city i mean i, I mean
1: I mean that riff is iconic. Yeah. I don't like Kiss, but I can I can say that. Do you want me to play you mine? Yeah, go for it. All right. That is the riff uh, for Stone Temple Pilots' Interstate Love Song, which is one of the best Stone Temple Pilots songs. A lot of people don't think about Stone Temple Pilots as their first thought of a band, but for whatever reason, that riff has lived in my head rent-free since I heard it at like 10 years old.
0: Fascinating. Okay. It, it,
1: it is it is one of my favorite. It's a it's like when I'm warming up on a guitar, I will play that riff. Like huh. it is, it's not super complicated. It, it's 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 fun. It's it's not like, you know, like a punky power chord type of thing, though I do love that sound. Yeah. It's not like super noodly. A lot of people might say the opening riff to Sweet Child of Mine. There's just something about that riff. The groove of it, the sound of it, the distortion, the tone of it has always just... When I think like electric guitar, I always immediately go...
0: What's fascinating for me is the fact that that is heavily in the grunge era. A solid like... I don't know what, 40 years into the history of electric guitar music? Yes. So
1: technically longer, but 40 years into it being in rock and roll context. Yeah.
0: Okay. So that's very fascinating to me.
1: You want to go with Detroit Rock City?
0: I mean,. I- Honestly, in that spirit, I think Nirvana smells like Teen Spirits opener. Okay, is probably up there. It definitely encapsulates the sound. It's funny because that riff was stolen from Boston, yeah. lovingly stolen from the band Boston in a different song,
1: mockingly stolen. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean that. There's there's Johnny Be Good. Anybody who's seen Back to the Future. I mean, I I am not mad at that answer. I am just surprised that it wasn't something from... It is. The Rolling Stones. No, it's, it's
1: funny because when I was thinking about this question... I was like, what is my quintessential guitar? And at first I was like, what's the Zeppelin riff? Or what's the Sabbath riff?
0: No.
1: And and the thing is, like, I love Zeppelin and I love... I I sincerely considered doing the intro to Zeppelin since I've been loving you. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, I think about that and I'm like, it's it's good. It's not the first thing I think of. What is the first thing? It is interstate love song.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of speaks, both of our answers kind of speak to the fact that like this is, this is like the first horror movie that actually scared you. This is a this is probably a a question that you could get a hundred different answers should you ask a hundred different people. Yeah. And I love that.
1: And there's people who are gonna say, like, a Jimi Hendrix riff yeah. or um god i one i was thinking of i just re i told i texted you this i was re-listening to david bowie's diamond dogs yeah And um, my favorite bowie song is rebel rebel sure well my second favorite technically my favorite is uh tonight tonight with which is his duet with tina turner sure my favorite pure bowie song is rebel rebel and that guitar riff also lives in my head rent free yeah so yeah no i love that um I appreciate you trying to trying to work with me on this very vague opening question.
0: Well, it would help if I could remember the song I'm actually thinking of to engage that discussion, but I try.
1: It's all good. We can move on. So in my quest to find interesting things to talk about on this podcast, I've often avoided things that might sound too, quote unquote, obvious. Mm-hmm. I talk about artists and genres and tech and people and even sports that often go ignored or unannounced, or I try to, at least. Um, to that end, forever ago, I talked about my arguable main musical instrument, the one that I do actually play more than anything else, the one that I actually play in a band, which is the bass guitar. Listen, re-listen to that episode. It's one that I th- I think about pretty often. I love that episode. Sure. Um, but I deliberately forsook talking about my actual main instrument, which is the electric guitar. This was not a mistake, but for the sake of content and for embracing the obvious for it, uh, I'm talking about that today.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think we even talked about in that episode about how like, it was funny that you were talking, I think we've talked about electric guitar, you know, minorly here and there, but when we talked about the bass, talked about how like you play bass Mm -hmm. in a band, but normally I'll see you pulling out an electric guitar and, and riffing on that.
1: Yeah. And that's, and that's like, I, it's always funny because it's interesting when you meet people who play both, because all of us kind of have this thing where if you're a bassist, you probably only own, if if you're a bassist slash guitarist, you probably only own like three, maybe four basses. Mm -hmm. I own four basses. You can argue my ukulele bass is a, is a bass as well. So maybe five basses, but I own like double that in guitars.
0: You are maybe the wrong person to talk about owning instruments. You know what that's
1: fair. <laughs> but but it's a thing. Like you'll you'll find people who own four basses and 25 electric guitars. Sure. It just yeah. it's just a, it's a weird thing. Um so I I was like given a little bit of basic background. So Obviously, the classical acoustic guitar is an instrument which has existed for centuries. Dates back to roughly 12th century Spain with predecessors that can be traced back to Greek and Moorish instruments 400 years before that. Um, the history is actually kind of um, anthropologically interesting because it's vague and people a lot of people don't know exactly where it descends from. Sure. but uh, But I'm not going to dig into that. The earliest versions of the electric guitar came about in the early 1930s. So if you think back to the 1930s, big band orchestras of the time were getting louder and louder. Uh, This was the swing era, of
0: course. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And it was harder for guitarists in those bands to actually be heard over horn sections, over string sections, over big old fucking drums,
0: which makes sense if you think about just the sound an acoustic guitar can make, even if you're putting a microphone right up to it, which they probably weren't.
1: And and here's the thing. Even if they were, you're going to get bleed from whoever else you're around That's a good point. while, while, while right. that's coming in. Yeah, right. So guitar manufacturers started experimenting with magnetic transducers that could be placed into the guitar and run into a speaker. What's that? What's that chuckle you just made?
0: We recently all watched the Rocky Horror Picture Show, a very beloved movie, and just that is a word I cannot hear. The transducer will seduce ya. Yeah, exactly. That that's just what I'm I'm having a shit eating grin about. <laughs> that's that's fair enough. In electrical engineering, a transducer is an
1: actual fucking thing. Yeah.
0: Um
1: So the first electric guitars put these transducers or pickups as they're generally known into hollow body acoustic guitars. You've seen my acoustic guitar, very similar to that. Uh, And they became a huge hit with jazz and blues players who figured out that they could also make playing solos in smaller ensembles a viable option. Mm. You think back to like, Way early days of the blues players like Leadbelly. Leadbelly played a twelve-string acoustic guitar, mm. and it was him and a fucking microphone. Okay, think back to old clips you see of Elvis playing an acoustic guitar with like two microphones, one in front of the guitar and one in front of his mouth. Sure, yeah, that was what they were playing before. And a lot of these blues players, especially in Chicago, Chicago became like the mecca for electric blues. Mm -hmm. Um, They figured out, okay, if I've got this electric guitar, I can hit the back of the club and and be heard. and And it sounds better than when I'm just trying to play an acoustic guitar with a microphone in front of it. Yeah, jazz players really loved it because suddenly guitar could be a lead instrument. Like, before, your lead instruments in jazz were horns. You know, Miles Davis was a trumpet player. John Coltrane was a sax player. Um, With the advent of these new guitars, you could get people like Charlie Christian and Wes Montgomery who were electric guitar jazz players, Mm -hmm. and it could become a lead instrument. Yeah. So this worked great, uh, though it was noticed that if the amps were too overdriven, if you turned them up too high, these hollow guitars would start feeding back horribly.
0: Okay, okay, so I can see where we're going here. So you need to get rid of the hollowness of the guitar. You you do see where I'm going. So some prototype and custom designed versions
1: of a solid body guitar, which uh, affectionately, uh, affectionately sometimes gets referred to as uh, a cutting board with a pickup in it. Um, <laughs> With no hollowing, they were made or commissioned by people like Les Paul and Merle Travis back in the 40s. Mm. Les Paul actually, like, made his own out of basically a log that he attached a neck to and and put a pickup in. Like, Les Paul was weird and experimented with shit like that. I mean, sure. Yeah. Um, And in the early 1950s, an engineer named Leo Fender designed his Esquire guitar, which was the first commercially available solid body.
0: And so for people who are not like electric guitar inclined or maybe particularly musically inclined, you're dropping some names that have become like the industry standard for electric guitar manufacturers. Les Paul, Fender. Yes. Like these are, this is the Coke and Pepsi of, of guitars. Literally. Yeah.
1: Like my, my, my jazz bass that's sitting over there in view of Andy has Fender stamped on the headstock to this day. Yeah. Um, and Leo Fender, um, Leo Fender's Esquire guitar was hugely popular um, and, and it was literally him taking the pickup out of a lap steel guitar and putting it into effectively a slab of wood with a neck on it that he just carved into something that could vaguely be played. Uh, I, I, I'm going to post, I'm gonna show Andy a series of pictures of some various guitars and I'm gonna put links to them in here. Um, But if you want to see what these things look like, just click some of those links. So, as electric guitars became uh, available commercially, they became foundational to blues-based music. Mm. As weird as it might sound, there was a time when blues was more of a piano-based music. It was more drum-oriented. It was more harmonica-based. You might have guitars in a blues band, but it was not crazy to see a blues ensemble that would be a piano, a stand up bass and a harmonica player, no guitar in sight. But as you started finding these commercially available electric guitars, which again, could get very loud, Mm -hmm. could reach the back of a club and you could play both rhythm and solo parts with them, they became foundational to that music. Early blues and R&B performers love them because the harmonically rich sound and loudness could replace whole orchestras. And let's be clear, when you run an electric guitar sound through an amplifier, that is harmonically very, very rich. You, you, Your tonal spectrum there is very similar. I, I'm getting into EQ nerdery here, but electric guitars hit in roughly the same uh, registers as the human voice. They get about as low as, you know, a uh, non-bass singer will sing. They can they can go as high as a soprano singer will sing. Yeah. And that range There's something about that range biologically that attracts us as humans. If you, any piano players who are listening to this, you'll be very aware, your melodic lines are right there in that range of the piano that the human voice is generally in. You're not generally playing melodies way at the top for very long or way at the bottom. It gets muddy there and and it doesn't hook in the same way. So just coincidentally, electric guitars happen to harmonically hit this one particular range and it became foundational for this music. It became foundational to rock music, thanks to Chuck Berry. You mentioned Johnny B. Good earlier, right? Absolutely. And it's funny to me because you go, "Everyone has seen Back to the Future, Johnny B. Good," and I'm like, "I, I know Johnny B. Good from Chuck Berry, but okay."
0: Well, right, because that's the. I, I say that because that's like the whole joke is that Michael J. It's Fon, your cousin
1: Marvin, Marvin, Marvin <laughs> Berry.
0: You know that hip new sound you've been looking for? Well, listen to this. Exactly. And I just assume more people remember that bit from Back to the Future, which is a Chex Notes 50-year-old movie, 40-year-old movie. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> Topical reference. Um, so thanks
1: to, so with rock and early rock and roll, I mean, Little Richard was a piano player. Sure. Chuck Berry was a guitar player, and Chuck Berry's influence on rock and roll is what brought you electric guitar to it. And all the people who went on to rip off Chuck Berry, the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, everyone who foundationally evolved rock and roll came at it from the Chuck Berry lens.
0: Which is funny because wouldn't a lot of people used to say that Little Richard was like the original king of rock and roll?
1: Yes, yeah. Little Richard, there's an argument that Little Richard was the inventor of rock and roll. It's it's tricky. You can also kind of say Ike Turner might have been the inventor. You can make an argument for Chuck Berry being it. Yeah. Uh, some people say Sister Rosetta Tharp, another guitar player, was the inventor of rock and roll. And it's very funny because if you ask Sister Rosetta Tharp about it, she just goes, man, that ain't nothing but sped up rhythm and blues. I've been doing that since the 40s,
0: <laughs>
1: which is great. Sure. Um, But every rock genre is closely tied to electric guitar. And from the mid-50s to about 10, 15 years ago, it was the key instrument in yeah. contemporary
0: music. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I feel like... The subgenres of rock are defined by the sound of the electric guitar as much as anything else. Yeah. You mentioned the Beach Boys, which got me thinking about surf rock, which got me thinking, oh, I should have said Miserloo as my answer. But like, surf rock is just like a little bit more of a wavy sound. Punk rock is a little bit louder and angrier of a sound. Heavy metal is just a crunchy sound. <laughs> I love that you're using, I, I, I love some of the adjectives you're
1: using because they're not that far off from how actual guitarists describe their own guitar tones sure like you'll hear guitarists like comparing pedals or comparing tones of certain instruments certain kind of pedals and they'll be like this one is tinnier and this one is uh this one it, i definitely heard crunchier there's literally a setting on some modeling amps that's called crunchy yeah and it's that like really mid-focused distortion sound
0: precisely you got to come up with words to describe the thing and i I'm not surprised I'm I'm pulling the overlap.
1: Oh sure. So at this point I want to show you some photos of some of these early electrics going all the way to contemporary times. Okay. You can spend as little or as much time um, talking about them as you want, but um, they're in front of you on the email and, and I'm going to put links in the description to all of these photos as well. Sure. So the first one here is the frying pan lap steel guitar. This was the first stringed instrument to have one of those electric pickups put in and notably it is a lap steel it is not actually a guitar you stand with
0: Mm, okay i mean it looks like a banjo looks like a banjo made out of metal
1: (laughs) i don't hate that uh, i don't hate that take it's tuned like a guitar it works like a guitar but it is a lap steel sure not really sure why lap steel was the first one I, i don't know for whatever reason they just that was the first one that was 1931 sure So, 1935, four years later, you get the K. Roberts Electro-Spanish.
0: And this is starting to look very much to what you expect. It, It is a guitar. It's got the artistic little S carvings into the wood, which I know you've told me before that those actually serve a purpose, but...
1: They're called F-holes. Yes.
0: Uh, Um, No, you also see them on... You see them on violins and cellos and a lot of other stringed instruments. The picture you're sending, it, it looks notably aged, but, like, if you look past that, you can see the bones of a guitar, but then everything in the middle around where you would actually strum, that looks completely different than what you would expect. Yeah,
1: so that has a pickup cover on it, um, the, the which is a piece of metal that would get put over the pickups. The idea behind that was it would hopefully reduce electromagnetic interference. Okay. Um, I know you've never done a tremendous amount of sound design, but you've been around it a little bit. Um, when you're dealing with stuff like electromagnetic transducers, things like say harsh lighting over top can add to the feedback Mm. now a lot of guitar players a lot of guitars would come with those covers and they a lot of guitar players would actually take it off just so they'd have an easier time picking but that was put there by the engineers to try and reduce some of that feedback issue because again you're dealing with hollowed out guitars and the vibrations from those hollowed guitars when you have a really loud, overdriven amp, there'd be so much feedback.
0: Okay, okay,
1: okay. So the next one uh, on here is a Gibson ES-150 Charlie Christian model from 1936. Uh, Guitarists affectionately refer to guitars like these as jazz boxes. And this is basically an acoustic guitar. It has the F holes and everything, but it's basically an acoustic guitar with that pickup right there towards the neck,
0: right? Yeah, I see that, and and again, yeah, it looks looks even more like what I'd expect a guitar to look like. I see some knobs to you know raise volume on the bottom, um, but again, just staring at the middle of it, something is like that just doesn't look like an electric guitar looks like. Okay.
1: So the next one, this one should be familiar to you. This is a Gibson ES three thirty five semi hollow guitar,
0: mm-hmm. and yeah, this. So now, thirty years later, we have what like is like the design of an electric guitar. Sure, you know you can change the body around, you can change what the fretboard at the top looks like, but like this is clearly an electric guitar. It's got a bunch of knobs. The area where you actually strum looks like what I'd expect it to look like.
1: Sure. And this probably looks familiar to you because I own the Epiphone version of this. It's my main guitar. Yep. Um, this also, I mean, you've seen a hundred people. Eric Clapton played this guitar. Alex Lifeson from Rush played this guitar. Sure, sure. This is, this was, and and the thing, uh, so I haven't talked about semi-hollow designs. Semi-hollows were actually a step between hollow body and, sem- and, and solid body guitars. Um, The deal with a semi-hollow is this guitar is not fully hollow. There is a plank of wood basically right down the middle where the pickups are mounted and then the two um, hollowed sections are actually glued to the edges. So it doesn't have... it still can feed back a little bit when really overdriven. I'm talking like your crunchiest like sludge metal kind of tones. (laughs) But this thing can take a lot more overdrive. Mm -hmm. But it also still has that hollowed construction still makes it sound really good in clean tones. And and you could play. I I love a semi hollow like this because I can play jazz or I can play like I could play that Stone Temple Pilots riff with that much distortion on this guitar. I could play Black Sabbath on this guitar. Mm -hmm. Probably couldn't play Cannibal Corpse on this guitar. But I can play a, a fairly wide range of things with this guitar. So next over here uh, is an image of both an Esquire and a Telecaster. These are the Fender models, and these are fully semi-hollow guitars. Okay. These were the first commercially available semi or f- f- solid body guitars, I apologize.
0: And yeah, the, just the visual distinction to keep that, that going is we're, we're moving away from the F-holes... Mm -hmm. This is very clearly not as wide of a, like, body as the guitars we've been seeing, which makes sense because they're fully non-hollow.
1: That's correct. And again, this is a guitar you've seen a hundred people play. Springsteen plays this. Tom Petty plays this. Prince plays this. um, Tom York from Radiohead plays a version of this. Um, These are incredibly common to this day. And the design is almost unchanged since 1951.
0: Like the great white shark.
1: I mean, yeah. Maybe the neck will be a little bit thinner. You might have different tuners, on tuning pegs on the neck. Um, you know, the pickups might be a little overwound or a little underwound in terms of how many magnetic coils are on them. There will be small little adjustments or changes, but, the, but by and large, this design has been almost identical since
0: 1951.
1: Okay. Uh, Next up, another one that you've seen a hundred times. This is a Fender Stratocaster. Introduced in 1954, maybe the most copied and popular electric guitar in history.
0: When I had a guitar, which was given to me with a copy of the game Rockstar, which was (laughs) supposed to be rock band, but with an actual guitar. It was supposed to be Guitar Hero, but it actually teaches you how to play guitar. It came with a knockoff Stratocaster. Yeah,
1: I actually uh, you 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 gave me that guitar. I did because yeah. I
0: played it like for three months along with the game, and then picked it up and like taught myself how to badly slowly play one song on it, and then I was like, this just isn't me.
1: Yeah, and and it, and you know, it's funny on a personal note. I've never liked Stratocasters that much. Like there's something about them and maybe it's because I love, um, so much heavy music. Mm. These are, you know, the single coil pickups on these can sometimes struggle with really heavy distortion. Um, to be clear, you can play pretty much anything on any guitar and anyone who tells you otherwise doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. Mm. Um, you can, it might not be ideal, but you can play roughly anything on any guitar. I never liked Stratocasters that much. Something about the sound of them never appealed to me. They are very playable. They are very easy to play. They're they're very light. Um, They're very well balanced. You can do a lot of things with them. I don't know why this is the most popular Guitar, like more people have a fucking Squire Stratocaster, which is the like knockoff, not knockoff, but like budget brand um, subsidiary offender. More people start on Squire strats to the point that it's almost a cliche.
0: Well, I think as an answer to that, you're probably not starting at death metal. Maybe you want to. Maybe that's the thing that inspires you to get into music, and then you go to some fifty-year-old guitar teacher, and he's like, "Okay, we're gonna start with like the Beatles," and this is this sounds like a guitar that is more suited for that older, maybe a little softer, maybe sound. Yeah,
1: my my guitar player in my band, which is a like R and B cover band. We you know we play. We play a lot of different things, but we play we play a lot of Motown. We play a lot of Stax Records stuff. We play, uh, we, we also play a little, like, we play the band and we play Wings, but we also play Hall & Oates. Yeah. But we also play Stevie Wonder. Like, a lot of that kind of thing. My guitar player plays a Fender Strat. Sure. That is his go-to. He actually told me that the next guitar we're going to talk about was what he was originally using, and it never felt right.
0: Oh, for that music
1: okay. then he got a fender strat and it felt right okay uh, before we move on to there the one thing i will say is i i mentioned i never gravitate very much towards strats and yet the last time i went guitar shopping because i had um i had a bunch of pedals that i was trading in and i had so i had guitar center money um the last time i did that i bought a five string bass and I bought a Squire Stratocaster Hmm. because it was $70, it was very inexpensive and it played so well. I I bonded with this guitar in such a way, and it's the guitar I keep at my job. Like that guitar lives under my desk and it's my practice guitar at work. It's a very cheap Stratocaster, but it plays so well. (laughs) So even me, who I don't consider myself a Strat guy, I was like, I I have to have this Stratocaster. (laughs)
0: Again speaking to the maybe the reason why it's so popular is because it just is a a really good guitar to play.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I've got two more for you okay uh, the next one is a, a technically three. the next one is a photo of 2019 versions of a Les Paul a Gibson Les Paul standard and a Gibson SG standard. Um, tell me what you think seeing these two guitars.
0: Well, so it, it might just be a function of um, the images you chose, but the thing me, the guitar layman sees is, okay, this is the first one that doesn't have the tobacco finish. Yeah. This is the first the, 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 there are two guitars here and they are noticeably visually different both in body and color. The necks and and heads are the same, but like, so this is what my brain goes, okay, this is when we really just start customizing the hell out of the body because we knew how to make the body. So it didn't matter that it has to look the exact same way anymore so we can start cutting them in different shapes and painting them with different ways and it's not going to actually affect the sound because we know what we're doing sure
1: and and you know that that is a little bit of a bias on the ones that i the photos i showed um all these guitars that i've shown minus maybe the very earliest ones they all come in things other than tobacco bursts the 335 comes in red and blue and all of that Mm -hmm. um you know telecasters can come in all manner of colors strats like, the thing about Strats was that they were based off of, like, old Cadillac color catalogs. Mm. So you could get them in red and blue and yellow and orange and, sure. and any number of things. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. Yeah.
1: And and you know what? Case in point, these two guitars can come in that tobacco burst, that classic burst. Yeah. Um, you might notice, the, you, you might remember the SG as being the Angus Young guitar, very famously.
0: Yeah.
1: Angus Young of ACDC was very associated with the Gibson SG. Um, I love a Les Paul. It might be my favorite electric guitar. I don't actually own a Gibson or Epiphone one. I have uh an ESP one that is very clearly a ripoff. And I own a Harley Benton guitar that is also a ripoff of uh Les Paul Jr. I love a Les Paul shape. That is the kind of guitar that I do gravitate to. Yeah. At least the electric guitar that I gravitate to. It can handle handle sludge metal. But it can also, like, clean up to the point where you can play, like, heavier jazz or lighter blues. Like, I I, I don't know. That's that's my sweet spot. Yeah. Personally speaking. Um, the, the SG was also the Tony Iommi guitar. And Tony Iommi might be the one guitar player who influenced my playing more than anyone else. Because I love Black Sabbath so much. Makes sense. So the last one I wanted to show you, um, those last two um, came out in 52 and 61, respectively. Yeah. I wanted to show you what I think is maybe one of the only really good-looking new model of guitars that I think, which is the St. Vincent guitar, originally released in 2016.
0: You think that's good-looking, huh? I like
1: this guitar. It's... uh, Apparently, I'm I'm sometimes in the minority about this. It looks a lot better than some of the bullshit that I've seen come (laughs) out.
0: Listeners, this thing looks like somebody took a guitar out of the Jetsons and made it real. This... This is a very weird body, rounded corners. Oh god, it's got a it's got an asymmetric um, top where on one side of the fretboard it ends sooner than the other side. I, I I like this color, Alex. I fucking hate what I'm looking at, but I'm not the guitar guy.
1: <laughs> oh. Okay, I'm gonna show you a different. Um, real quick, I, I'm gonna just send this to you. Um, this is the Billy Corgan signature guitar, which is another recent one that came out. Mm. This is what I think is a hideous contemporary guitar. Okay. Absolutely (laughs) ugly as shit. Okay. (laughs) So I just emailed that to you.
0: Oh joy. In real time listeners. Okay. So I'm looking at this guitar here and I mean, it's not, it's not great. I, I do think it's a little bit better. It's its butt bothers me. It's, it's, butt <laughs> it's is, butt bothers the, the you. The butt of the guitar. The bottom of the, the guitar is very like it's it's a weird egg shape, but like kind of at a diagonal. I I I understand. This is also ugly. I mean, do you, you want to be perfectly honest, Alex? We did not need to, in terms of the style and the body, we did not need to move past like what we achieved by nineteen eighty-five. Like by that point you had the Flying V, you had the Angus Young looking guitar, you had a you, you had the 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 Charlie Christian looking guitar or the semi hollow like the one on your on your step. There there's Symmetry is pleasing, is I guess what I'm really saying here.
1: Fascinating. So it's interesting because I fucking hate flying Vs. They're one of the most uncomfortable guitars to play sitting down. Oh, sure. And I I, I think they're hideous. Um, Although you've never seen a reverse flying V, which are even worse. True. Uh, (laughs) But no, I get it. And and you know what? Here's the thing. There are a lot of blues lawyer dad type players who agree (laughs) with you. Literally, we have a term for them called blues lawyers. They're people who like play bar gigs, but decide they need ten thousand dollar rigs okay. uh, in order to play their like shitty little bar gigs. It's always fascinating to me. But there, yeah, there there's a there is an opinion that like we haven't had a good new guitar design since Pick Your Date, nineteen sixty one, when the SG yeah. came out. There's people who think the SG is too ostentatious, and they're like, we should have never moved past a Les Paul and a Telecaster. Like,
0: do well, no, I I'm willing to agree with that. And
1: and the thing is, like there are so many, like I could shoot you, I I had to pare this list down. Um, I was going to show you a bunch of, like, 80s metal guitars that are clearly offshoots of a Stratocaster, but made to look, like, modern and sleek. Yeah, sure. And I could have shown you a Flying G. I could have shown you um, the Carina or the Explorer or any of these other guitars that I'm sure you've seen in music videos and just over the years. Yeah. Um, One of your favorite guitar players and singers, Claudio Sanchez... Play, often plays a Gibson Explorer, hmm. uh, which is really uh, like it, it was a really unpopular model when it came out. and It only became really popular in later years, but it's a cool ass guitar. I would I would love to have a Gibson Explorer. I think they're dope as shit. Um, He's
0: also the man who I I think is most commonly associated now with a double necked Fender situation. Uh,
1: uh, that's a that's a double neck SG. Yeah, I hate those guitars because they weigh like. As much as the world. Sure. Absolutely. And are just shitty. Um, but sure, if it works for it works for Claudio and it works for Jimmy Page and it works for fucking nobody else. <laughs> so, um,. I've, I've, I've put you through enough of this, um, moving with, into our home stretch.
0: With, with the point where we would normally switch topics, tell me why you like the electric guitar.
1: Uh, well, I don't really agree with those who call the electric guitar the quote-unquote greatest instrument in the world. I, a piano is arguably much better, um, just because you can replicate a whole fucking orchestra with it. Uh-huh. Um, I do think the guitar allows for certain things that not many other instruments do. The ability to bend strings while you're playing alone adds a level of emotion that you can't get out of something like a piano.
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense because it's a new level of manipulation on the sound.
1: Yeah. So I think about something like the way David Gilmour bends a string is fucking heartbreaking in the right context. Sure. Um, The ability to edit tones through the use of different parts, pickups, amplifiers, and pedals means, again, that the same instrument can play soft jazz, shoegaze, and sludge metal.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You can do all three of those things with a Les Paul.
0: Yeah.
1: And, And that differentiation of context, that versatility, you don't see that in violin or saxophone. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those instruments, but it's such a unique thing to this particular one.
0: Yeah.
1: I have a soft spot for things that are easy to learn and difficult to master. You can tell by my love of things like chess. Just yes, like you I, do love chess. Yes, and just like I can teach someone the rules of chess in 10 minutes, I can teach a person to play a song on the electric guitar from absolutely nothing in about the same 10 minutes. It'll be an easy song, something with power chords, very simple strumming pattern, But that alone will cover so much music. I can teach someone to play Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones in 10 minutes because that is three chords, it is one shape, and you just move that one shape along some fucking dots. Mm -hmm. I can do the same thing with Green Day's Brain Stew.
0: Which, you know, could have been my answer at the top of this because I think that's the first guitar riff I ever heard where I was like, oh, I want to pay attention to the sound. Yeah.
1: And the, and the thing is, those are two incredibly easy songs. Yeah. Not not complicated in the slightest. I can teach someone to play those very very quickly, and they're both electric guitar sounds. Yeah, and they're satisfying. That said, just like you can study chess for decades to improve even just a little bit, you can read books on theory. You can study. Um, you, you can study players who historically have absolutely elevated the game and been beyond what anyone could have possibly imagined Mm. there's literally computer systems that you can use to analyze and get better with no you can study playing guitar for a lifetime and always have more to learn finally electric guitar is absolutely the most fun instrument that i've ever played back during the early days of the pandemic i had multiple people ask me for help on getting started playing playing guitar and, I, and, I, and during the pandemic, I put an offer out to people. I might've even mentioned it on the podcast. I was like, listen, now is the time when we're in lockdown, if any of you, for your own benefit, if you want to pick up any kind of musical instrument, I will help you find one. Mm-hmm. You tell me your budget and what instrument, I will help you find a used one or a very inexpensive budget one. You tell me your budget, I will help you find lessons, whether you want an actual like teacher that you can pay for, or if you just want free resources on YouTube. I offered this to people. I was like, I will help you find things. And this was my little way of just reaching out to my community and being like, I I have a very particular set of skills yeah put that drop in <laughs> i have a very particular set of skills and that is
0: i do have a very particular set of skills skills i have acquired over a very long career skills that make me a nightmare for people like you
1: helping people and that is finding budget conscious ways to learn and study and do music and i gotta tell you i always whenever someone was like I want to start learning how to play guitar. Um, I always started by asking them if they wanted to learn electric or acoustic. Uh, sidebar, the pandemic may have actually saved the electric guitar from obscurity. Guitar sale we had more guitar sales at the in the first year of the pandemic than we had in like the previous 20 years combined. Wow, okay. And you're seeing the reverberations of right now, because in popular music, electric guitar is more common than it has been in the last, like, 15 years. I
0: can recall previous conversations where we talked about how that really had been phased out of pop.
1: And and it is coming back, and I think a lot of that is because people bought guitars, because they were bored out of their fucking minds. Um, anyway... Almost all the people I talked to said that they wanted to start on an acoustic and eventually move to electric. You told me at the beginning of this, a a person probably isn't going to start off by playing heavy metal. Yeah. I disagree with that. I tried my best to always talk them out of starting on an acoustic. Acoustic guitar is great, but it's always best to play the one you're more excited by. Play play the one you're more and people would be like, Oh, I have neighbors. I don't want to be too loud. Shut the fuck up. There are headphones. (laughs) You can just get headphones and plug them into your amplifier. That's how I played for years. Yeah. It's, it's, it's exciting. Acoustic guitar is great. I love acoustic guitar. I have an acoustic guitar. I, I, I play it almost as much as I play my semi hollow electric guitar. There's something about plugging in an electric guitar putting in a little distortion or or the right amount of overdrive and then hitting a riff or hitting a power chord or just hitting something like that, Mm -hmm. playing something with that intensity of that sound. It's so much fun. Yeah. It is so enjoyable. And I love this instrument so much. I'm glad it's having a comeback. I don't think it'll ever be the main instrument of popular music again. But I'm glad to see it not falling wholly into obscurity. I'm glad that so many people bought them. And yes, maybe a lot of them ended up in closets the way fucking sourdough mixers, mixes did. But for if even just 10% of the people who started playing guitar during the pandemic continue with it, that is an incredible resurgence that I think will have generational reverberations as we move on into the next century of guitar playing.
0: That's really exciting. I mean it, it, it truly is and you know we've I've made no bones about how like I probably like rock more than any other of the core genres so sure. I'm happy to see it bleed back into pop and and other avenues and continue to be like a viable option so it doesn't go the way of the steel guitar or, and be only played in 80s 50s European nightclubs or the saxophone.
1: Yeah. I don't want. I love saxophone. I, I still want to learn to play saxophone someday. But I I don't want the electric guitar to become the saxophone where it's just a retro sound that you only see thrown in with retro bands and yeah. and in and and when you want a retro vibe. Sure. Like, the technology of it keeps evolving, and there's exciting new places to go into now. You can now have MIDI guitars that function a lot like MIDI keyboards and will play, we'll play samples. That's fucking dope as shit. Yeah. So I, I'm excited about the future of this instrument. You let me ramble on long enough. I think it's exciting. If any of you are interested in getting started with guitar, let me know. I'm happy to be a shepherd to direct you towards resources and, and what you can buy and what not to buy and all of that. So my offer still stands, even though we're not in lockdown anymore.
0: So another thing to hit us up on email and Twitter about. Yeah. (laughs) But in the meantime, uh, I'm going to take a moment here to talk about my topic for the week, which is my hate. And this is currently a very topical hate. It is my sincere hope that by the time you're actually listening to this, listeners, it is not so topical. But I want to take a moment to go into the History of the Numerous Writers Guild of America Strikes that we have had in this country over the past 60 or so years.
1: I'm here for it. We uh, just entered a new one, uh, or we're about to. Precisely. And I'm excited here. Uh, WGA writer Strikes have been a recurring topic of conversation for me and you because they've been so significant to the media we love. So please, go in.
0: So... The Writers Guild of America is like a organization that very clearly, I think, states it is for the writers of movies and television who work in America specifically to have a like representation and a union and be able to band together and and have rights. Um, The Labor Guild was formed in 1950 to give writers a voice and and help them not be so marginalized and, and forgotten when it came to um, movies and television actually being successful. Okay. And since then, we have had five, we are entering the fifth, Writers Guild strikes that have caused significant massive delays in the entertainment landscape for a little bit of context the contract in which the WGA like operates is renegotiated every 3 years to kind of update the rights and and make it so that we aren't still living by jurisdictions that were made back in the 50s. And that might be part of why this is so prevalent. But I'm going to briefly talk about each of these strikes. And I think there's going to be a pretty significant recurring issue. Mm -hmm. So the first one I want to talk about is the 1960 Writers Guild of America strike. Um, which has gone on to be the second longest strike in, in American history for this particular organization. Okay. Six years after the Writers Guild of America is founded. And it was like the key issue was about the fact that writers were not being paid. They were not being given residuals. For any movie that came up on like rerun. So anything after a primary theatrical release, writers were not seeing any of the money and also low budget half hour shows and anything that was an hour long program. It just wasn't in the contract up until that point for there to be any residuals for the writers, probably because in 1954, nobody thought we were going to have hour long television content.
1: Well, yeah. And, you have to remember in 54 we're still yeah this is pre-cable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: so this is a period of time it's it's understandable that no one would think to put that in the contract because syndication isn't really a thing the way that it becomes yeah. in later years. Um, if you talk to people who were around in those times they'll they'll <laughs> they'll bitch and moan about how like oh if we wanted to we, we didn't get reruns. Like like y'all like y'all have. We didn't have streaming. If you didn't see the episode of I Love Lucy or the Flintstones, if you didn't see it then, you weren't gonna see it again. Maybe you'd catch a rerun at three in the afternoon when you were at work or at school, but that was a maybe. Like it, and and again, only three channels. Blah de blah blah.
0: Right. And so we, we know at least by 1960 reruns were a thing mm-hmm. because writers were not actually getting any money from them. That yeah. was like the core gain from the 1960 writer's strike was to actually start seeing residuals on reruns and different lengths of, of content than we were used to. Sure. So that brings us to the 1981 writer strikes. So we met, we, we, we lasted 23, 21 years. Mm-hmm. We lasted three more of these contract extensions. We get to the 1981 writer's strike, which again, like becomes a thing. It, this one didn't last nearly as long as the 1960 writer strike, but the core, um issue of this strike was the fact that writers were not seeing residuals from stuff like video, video disc and cassette markets. They weren't seeing this new technology that was invented and, and distributed and sold and writers were not seeing any of the money for it because up until that point no one had thought that this would be a method of distribution and so nobody thought to make sure that the writers got a part of it there's
1: also it is also worth stating here when you're talking about things like the video market the movie industry and the tv industry were very like people forget this they sued betamax and vcr because they were sitting here going like if people can record fucking stuff off of the TV. It is going to kill our business models. Nobody will go to movies anymore. Nobody will continue to watch reruns anymore. It's going to destroy
0: our, nobody will watch live sports because they can just record it. That's the big one. I, I remember still seeing it as a kid. You know, anytime you put on a baseball game, the first, like, 30 seconds were the big warning blue screen that said any illegal recording distribution of this event is punishable by law. And that was, like, a thing people were actually worried about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But- and, and so they tried to kill this industry, and when they couldn't, they were still trying to profit from it as best they could. Right. Absolutely. Which included not
0: paying people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially not paying the writers, because there was nothing that said they had to physically pay the writers. Um, so then cut to the 1988 Writers Guild Strike of America. This is seven years later. This is two contract negotiations later.
1: By the way, the average, uh, I, I did the math real quick. The average is just under every 14 years. Yeah. There's a fucking writer's strike.
0: Which I will say is better than the National Hockey League. who Jesus also Christ. Also had multiple strikes in a shorter amount of time. <laughs> Um, but so this, this is like the big one. This is 153 days of a strike. It's the longest strike in the history of the WGA. Um, it is like, it's only not in recent memory because this is almost 40 years ago, Mm -hmm. but the formal like negotiations and the issues at the table were about residuals for hour long shows. Again, going back to the issue from the sixties, because, Before, it was just, you don't get rights at all if it's an hour-long program. And then they were like, okay, fine, we'll give you rights when it comes out. But now by 1988, we are starting to see, like, I think HBO is taking its first fledgling baby steps and, like, hour-long content is becoming something that you can make a rerun for.
1: I've referenced the Who Shot JR episode of Dallas multiple times. Right, absolutely. Dallas was the biggest show in the country and that was an hour-long drama that drew in a ridiculous percentage of the TV watching audience
0: without like looking up in real time and figuring out the timeline. It's entirely possible that Dallas being so big and the writers realizing, Oh, we cost our, we we lost a shit ton of money because it wasn't in our contract to get rerun residuals might've influenced the strike. Um, This is also the one, the first one I hear about where the writers were actually looking for expanded creative rights wanting to be consulted in stuff like casting and choice of director for projects, which that one's significant just because like you think about who actually crafts a story, who actually creates a piece. It's the writer. And it is pretty crazy that like 50 years after we start making filmed content and, 30 something years after the guild is invented, we finally start going, hey, this is like our intellectual property. We'd like to have some say in how it is presented to the public. Yeah. And writers
1: have always been an easy, like, shift them along part of this because movies have always been looked at as a director's medium. Right. I think TV has largely been looked at, or, or for a time, TV was largely looked at as an actor and producer medium, weirdly enough. Yeah. Um, I feel like in more recent years, you'll get things like, like, you know, we think about a lot of TV shows and their creator credits, you know. Uh, we talked about making Michael Shore a love for this podcast multiple times. Michael Shore being a writer primarily, but he's, he's the creator of so many of these wonderful TV shows.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the biggest effects of this strike was that, like, sports media – Really dominated the schedule because it was the easy thing that, like, we don't actually need a writer in order to put on our Summer Olympics coverage content. Sign of things to come. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) Um, It really hurt late night television as well as... As well as, like, the sitcoms of the time, The Cosby Show, Johnny Carson, the Mission Impossible TV show that nobody remembers it was a TV show. You know, this... This
1: My parents remember. My parents loved Mission Impossible when they were young. (laughs) They told me about it.
0: This hit the market significantly in that way. Um, And actually, weirdly... Led to a boom in animated content, specifically in the holiday season. Like, I think this was the year that we got, like, the Garfield Christmas special oh. and and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and animation, right? This is, this is an important caveat. Writers for animation are not part of the WGA. Yeah. They're not allowed to be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, topical to your interests, we almost lost Halloween 4... Due to this strike specifically. (laughs) Uh, The writer of that film, Alan McElroy, had 11 days with which to write the script for the film Mm -hmm. before he had to boycott and and not write as part of the WGA. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, Not, not the best Halloween movie. Not the best Halloween movie. Also, also topical to my other podcast, which I did not know this until I was reading this. The 1988 film Earth Girls Are Easy, Mm -hmm. which I I watched for cult fiction with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, and it's like a really crazy wild ride, was filmed during the strike. And so the writer of that film had to not be on set in order to like, you know, stand strong, which actually explains a few things.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Goldblum. Go on.
0: Anyway. Um. Just, just a couple other hits here. Uh, the Child's Play, the original Chucky movie. You mm. mentioned you've seen every Chucky at the beginning of this episode. Uh, Don Mancini, who was the writer of that film, he also had to like forsake being on set. Um, License to Kill, one of the Timothy Dalton, James Bond films, as well as narrowly Tim Burton's Batman and Beetlejuice. Like, almost. We almost didn't have the Tim Burton Batman because of this strike.
1: Arguably the best Batman.
0: It's certainly in the running. Yeah. Now you want to get nuts? Come on. Let's get nuts. They come to an agreement, as they do every time, because here, here's the thing. I, I, I've got two more to talk about, but you'll notice a pattern of every single one of these strikes, it becomes... Well, we want rights for this new thing that wasn't, like, a popular format up until now. Producers and studios go, hey, no. The writers go, hey, fuck you. What if we stop writing? And then inevitably, like, they win because we need written content for media. Um, Fast forward 20 years to the 0708 Writers Guild Strike of America. And this is the one that, like, you and I were alive yeah. for
1: and this is when I thought of, like we we lived through this and we we can actually very personally speak to the repercussions of
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. The 2008 strike, the main issues on the table were larger funding for writers, a larger cut of profits in general, um, but also wanting to um, get greater dvd residuals before it was video cassette residuals now dvd is the technology dvd is the format for which content is being produced writers are not seeing dvd residuals it is the exact same thing that happened in 1981 only swap out the media yep um as well as having jurisdiction over animation and reality television in in a writing capacity which was quote-unquote new media Mm-hmm. in 2007 sure um and and like yeah like we said this is the big one this is the one that like weirdly enough a viacom south park contract like viacom made a deal with the writers of south park that actually kind of kickstarted this off because the writers of south park wanted to be treated fairly and viacom was like you make a fucking cartoon what are you talking about here and helped inspire this strike. But this is the one that like has an entire list of shows that people have heard of that like killed what this uh, you know, uh, shows that people have heard of that were canceled because of this strike. And
1: I want to be clear about something. Andy mentioned reality TV a moment ago, and I remember in the early 2000s, this giant influx of people going, what the fuck is everything being reality TV now? Yeah. Why does this suck? Oh, Americans must be stupid because we keep watching this garbage reality TV show. Sure. Reality TV shows don't need writers. Like, scripted things need writers. Yeah. Effectively, the like, yes, there are writers employed on reality TV, but those writers, by and large, are also functioning as production assistants, actual directors, and editors. Yeah, absolutely. We have reality TV because the industry wouldn't fucking pay writers.
0: Which they had 50 years to, like prevent this from happening the way this did.
1: You want to talk about some of these TV shows?
0: I I do. I mean you know just to talk about the effects. This one's interesting because late night television they immediately went to reruns on like day one of the strike mm-hmm. they which which makes sense because it's the content that you need a writer to come up with something every single night of the week for yeah um and it is the topical thing i mentioned how they were affected in the last strike and this one just the second they were like "Well, oh, writing's on the wall we're going to reruns for, reruns for three months we lost a season of saturday night live Um, And we lost a ton of shows, some of which were, like, deeply beloved and wonderful. Um, The main hits, the the main ones that, like, were actually um, heartbreakingly taken away from us, in my opinion. um, We had Heroes, which was a groundbreaking TV show and was really helping the public like fall in love with superhero media before the MCU ever came around. Yep. And season two was greatly affected by the writer's strike. Season two is regarded as the worst season of the show. And it it petered along for like another couple of years, but everybody pretty clearly can see that like, okay, well, season two is where this loses me and it never really picks me up again. Yeah. Um, Shows that had shortened seasons were stuff like 30 Rock, The Big Bang Theory, Family Guy, Every Flavor of CSI, (laughs) Desperate Housewives, Grey's Anatomy, uh, um, Pushing Daisies, a show that I dearly love um, was greatly impacted and was canceled because of the writer's strike because it was too like crazy of a concept. And not being able to have the writer on screen to help, like, lead it along really helped, really hurt the property. 2000 mid 2000s television is really, really weird because, like, you look at the shows that actually were canceled because they couldn't be written, and it's stuff like the Bionic Woman TV show, it's that that Geico Cavemen TV show that was like Nick Kroll's big break. Mm -hmm. Um, Stuff that I've heard about, like the 4400, which was a lost knockoff. Every show, every show you can think about was affected from this, with the exception of like HBO content and SpongeBob. Other than that, if there was a show you were watching during this time, it went away for a while. It went to reruns. Yeah. Um, this almost canceled the finale of scrubs, which one. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The good, the good one, the real one. Yeah. So that was, that was the big one. That was the last one. That's the one I remember. And like being terribly concerned over the con, the quality of future content. It ended the way it always ended with like, after the longest strike from writers, the longest holdout studios finally went fine. I guess we'll give you a cut of the DVD sales. Please come write for Kimmel. (laughs) And they did. And we've lasted another 15-ish years. About the average. Before now, in this year, like just in the past month, a formal writer's strike has begun and has taken place. As of, like, this Tuesday, people are already saying, like, okay, there is going to be a strike.
1: And of course, what is
0: this strike about, Andy? This strike is about a new technology that nobody could like foresee being a profitable venture when the last thing was written, when the last like bylaws and, and contract was written, now is a hugely profitable thing that writers are not seeing a part of. I am referring, of course, to streaming content.
1: Now, I wanna reemphasize a point here that Andy mentioned earlier on. The contract with the WGA gets rewritten every three years. Writers have not just suddenly gone, Well, they're streaming now, we wanna go on strike because we want the residuals. No, they have been asking for these residuals in their contracts for I think the last 12 years, the last
0: four rewrites. Well, and even you you look back to 2008 and that is when Netflix is starting to really take off and take its first burgeoning steps. I think a lot of the writers who like got fired from other shows went on to start writing the first Netflix original TV series Yeah. Um, and so there is a, a, a genuine like connection from the last one. And so like I, I've talked about all these things, you know, this one, um, all we know right now is that Saturday Night Live has said, okay, we're done we're not doing any more episodes for the rest of the season until the strike is done. Um, We can foresee that late night television is going to go away and any show that you like, that is like still in um, production. I'm looking at the last of a season two. I'm looking at euphoria season three. Um, I think succession is ending. So that one's probably going to be spared, but like, this is potentially going to have a profound impact on your listener, your favorite show over the next year or two. And streaming has
1: been so fascinating because here's the thing. In previous versions of this, there were spaces for money to still come in. Yeah. On those reruns, when writers were trying to get money on home video they had gotten their residuals on things like reruns. So when companies were showing reruns, the writers were still being able to be paid. Importantly, those writers who were still being able to be paid could be paying into the strike fund for the WGA. So even writers who were striking who didn't get those residuals were still able to pay their rent and feed their families. Streaming has been such a weird monster because here's the thing. We don't have reruns the way that we used to. Yeah. Viewership on reruns of actual syndicated TV are at their lowest because of streaming. And streaming doesn't just fuck over writers. You know? Fucks over actors. Fucks over directors. Exactly. And it used to be like the, the thing about syndication and, and I think we've touched on this a little bit before. But if you don't know, syndication, when – it was a big thing for a long time for TV shows to reach a certain number of episodes. I believe it was 48 episodes for half-hour TV shows, um, which is maybe two or three seasons um, – I don't remember what it was on hour-longs, but the point was when you got a certain number of episodes, you could get syndication, and syndication meant those residuals. It Mm -hmm. meant continuously having money coming into you for everyone who was negotiated for that for a while. This is why actors talked about how you do movies for art, but you do TV for money. Yeah. The people, the people who were on Friends made a million dollars an episode of Friends, but then they also got residuals. The reason Seinfeld can afford a fucking garage full of Ferraris is not because of how successful Seinfeld was at the time, but it's how
0: he's continued to make money off of the syndication. And for the littler people, for the non-Jerry Seinfelds, it was like the reason you can viably say that you want to pursue this career is because – Yes, it's a struggle, especially a struggle to break in, especially a struggle to make ground. But if you can get on that TV show, yeah, if you can get on 30 Rock or Scrubs or whatever, then you know you're going to be at least okay to hey, get you to the next project. Yeah, and you might be in the writer's room
1: for 30 Rock for three months out of the year. And you were trying to line up another writer's room job after that one wrapped. But the point was, you had that bridge in case that didn't come in or it took a while because you had the residuals on other episodes of things you've done for a while. Right. Now, with streaming, from the beginning, streaming has locked a lot of people out. And the problem is, now we don't have those residuals to fall back on in the same way for syndication. Yeah. For all for all of that before, because people aren't watching TV as much, they're watching streaming,
0: and streaming hasn't paid those from the beginning. And streaming has been has been corporately defined as technically different and distinct. Yeah. So this
1: is it. We you have gone down four different strikes here, but this strike
0: is different. So here's the thing. I would argue it's not actually. This is my this is my hate. I've, I've talked about these these things. I've laid down the history. Time and time and time again, the issue on the table is there is a new thing that we didn't realize was going to be an avenue for content. And because we didn't realize it, we didn't think to ask for a cut of it. And because we didn't explicitly think to ask for a cut of it, your corporate lawyers decided that we would not get a cut of it. And now this is a hugely profitable thing.
1: Okay, let, uh, let, me, let me rephrase. I will apologize. You are correct. The origins of this strike yes. are exactly the same. Yes, that's I mean, all, that's all yeah. I mean. The origins of this strike are corporate buttfuckery. Yes. <laughs> on the part of the studios and, 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 and the corporate structures that every time a new shift is made in the media market, they try and fuck over this particular group no. for their own profit. The origins of the strike are the same the realities of the strike are different. Yes. Because again, the strike fund isn't being paid into in the same way because when those studios go over to reruns, it doesn't mean as much. If a streaming service just wants to cut off the streaming bits, people are still going to fucking keep watching reruns of the office wherever they are. Yeah. But the residual structure on those is inherently different.
0: Yeah, I I, I will agree with that. Absolutely. The WGA in a formal statement has said the survival of writing as a profession is at stake in this negotiation. And for once, I don't, not for once, but I don't take them lightly on that. I think there is validity to that statement for the reasons you're laying out. And also thinking about how like, you know, what's the other frontier that isn't even actually streaming YouTube, Internet content. Yeah. the thing that is pro that has proliferated and become its own a genre unto itself since 2008. Yeah, that there's pressure on the writers, especially because separately from anything the studios do, except probably like Viacom or whoever owns YouTube at this point, um, we, the viewers, the people, can go, ah, shit, Last of Us 2 isn't going to happen because of the strike. I guess I'm going to watch a pl- Let's Play of Last of Us on YouTube now. There is another thing we can go and watch that's not reality TV, that's not even sports, that is a whole new thing. Yeah,
1: and there's there's two specters looming over this. One is... And and, and, and I might sound silly to you as I articulate the, at least one of these. One of the specters is... The realities of old media. Yeah. Radio is still around. Newspapers are still around. TV, as in terrestrial TV and cable and satellite, are going in that direction. Yeah. There, it, it'll take a while, but it is going in that direction where it captures it, – it, 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 it's at the point now where a hit TV show – a, a, an absolute success is if it gets three million viewers. The Super Bowl gets easily a, over a hundred million. Like it, it, and once, a, and, and again, that Dallas, that, 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 that Dallas, um, who shot JR episode, that one was in the upper tens of millions. I don't think yeah. it quite reached a hundred million. The MASH finale was the most watched scripted TV event i think in history and that was like 120 million i think 3 million is now a hit that would have been considered an abject failure 20 years ago yeah streaming is now where the is where the bulk of the TV content is hitting and you are right to point out youtube as an alternative so that is one reality hanging over this. They are negotiating not just for let me get a piece of this new technology that's now a factor. No, they are negotiating for the literal future yeah. of this guild.
0: To, to that point, the other thing, and I, I appreciate that they – For once, not for once, again, I keep saying that. I appreciate that the Writer's Guild is looking ahead, especially, because the other thing they're saying is they want um, IP controls over artificially generated content.
1: And that was my second point here. And again, this is where we might sound conspiracy theory-ish, but we talked about AI art recently. Yeah. And, and, and there's the running joke of like, oh, I fed an AI machine a thousand hours of The Sopranos and here's the scripted, okay, whatever, that's fine. But the point is with the increasing sophistication of yeah. AI-generated art, we are now getting to the point where, we are fast approaching the point where you can feed, if you have an existing show Or you have a series of existing shows. You can feed those into an algorithm and it will shit you out a script that is at least workable bones Mm -hmm. and a knowledgeable director, editor, producer, people who maybe aren't necessarily script writers, but... Who handle stories and who know their way around scripts can take those bones and fashion their content out of it. We are going to be approaching AI generated TV, or at least AI written TV, in the coming years. It's not that far off. I've seen estimates as soon as three years. I've seen most people saying it's pretty much inevitable within a decade.
0: And I guarantee you, especially if this strike goes over 100 days goes over three months, you're going to have somebody at Netflix who goes, well, let's just try it. Let's just see what happens. Oh, we'll market it that way. Check out the
1: first AI-written TV show.
0: Exactly. And the fact that it's gonna be weird and clunky and kind of suck is gonna be part of the quote unquote meta-humor of it all. Yeah. And it's and it's and,
1: and the thing is we've seen this fucking script because we saw it with reality TV. Yeah. They said, no scripts, like that was some kind of selling point. No scripts, all reality. Yeah. Which was a lie from the beginning. And it'll be a lie when they say that it's entirely AI generated. It's going to be edited by humans so that it is at least somewhat serviceable, but it's still going to fuck over actual the actual people who fucking create the
0: media you love yeah so i'm coming to the end of this here we we have no way of knowing how this is going to play out other than our our admittedly dire but i think uh, acu- well intentionedly accurate well intentionedly skeptical predictions um the writers are once again trying to just come up with a living wage to be able to create the content that you, I, and you, dear internet friend, love. And are kind of just, at the end of the day, turning to people like David Zaslov and Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos. People who are raking in record profits because they are the ones in charge of the streaming content services and going can we have our share please
1: yeah and to be clear and we we talked about this when we were talking about the hbo discovery merger david zaslov cut a bunch of media including what was probably going to be a really dope batgirl movie that was almost done specifically because he didn't want to pay on these small residuals that were already going to be attached to it yeah it was a cost saving measure because he knew that if it's streamed, yes, it would make a profit. But we would also have to pay residuals on it. And the gamble he made was that the residuals would not be worth it. Now imagine when we start adding more people, more writers, more production people, more of the people who actually worked on it. Imagine what happens when we start adding them to that pie. Yeah, We might cut the pie up a little more small for everybody or we might add on to them either way it doesn't change the calculus for those people they sit here and i they go this number of people will get paid for their work and that is profit out of our pockets so we're not going to do it
0: yeah we're we are coming at the tail end of the covid19 quarantine I refuse to say the pandemic's over because it's fucking not. We are coming to the end of the period in which content already had to shut down. Movie theaters already had to, like, do a shutdown. This is, for so many reasons, potentially the worst writer's strike with the the worst consequences we have ever seen. And it is about stuff that we love. At the end of the day, like maybe this won't lead to the heat death of the planet, but it might lead to the final bullet in the head for movie theaters or non AI generated content
1: or content that just, we said at the beginning of this in our douchebag buffer, we were at an apex point for horror.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: We're, people have talked about the last 10, 15 years being the golden age of television an era that started with the Sopranos and now people are calling things like The Last of Us and Succession some of the greatest television that's ever been made. You could argue we're still in that era, maybe. Yeah. Um, but you don't get that without the writers. Yeah. You don't have golden eras of art without writers. You have schlock, like goddamn reality television.
0: Yeah. You have, to speak to speak to the old white men in charge you have billions of dollars of revenue lost which depending on no matter how you're looking at it it is a bad is a bad thing yeah um so i will continue to watch this issue with growing interest and concern i encourage you to do the same dear listeners but you know what else i encourage you to do send us questions <laughs> send us prognostications Uh, Every other episode of Cult Fiction, which as of recording the next episode, we will be doing our thing where we take your and the Internet's relationship questions and we provide our perfectly unqualified advice. You
1: can send those questions to love, hate, relationship Podcast at gmail.com. We promise we'll read them. You can also follow us on Twitter still, I guess, no. at LHRPOD. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. DM us your questions there. Send questions you find on the internet or from your friends or family or loved ones or strangers on the street. And uh, you can also l- look up there for us to continue tweeting about various topics that we've already talked about in the past. I'm sure at some point I'll have an opinion on the new John Mulaney special. (laughs) Oh
0: god, right?
1: Uh, I kind of want to watch it. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You can follow me, Andy Boel, at jovocop2113 on Twitter. You can also follow my other account where I paint miniatures. That's Andy's underscore minis. Uh, I'm recently having donated some stuff I painted to a local game shop, so I'm very excited for that. And you can find my other podcast, Cult Fiction, that I mentioned earlier that I do with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, where we watch old cult movies that may or may not have been interested by various writer strengths. Yeah.
1: I should have mentioned before you said that that you can uh, find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, You can follow me on uh, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, TikTok, Chess.com and LieChess uh, of those five I'm really only on Instagram and Chess.com although I'll poke into LieChess once in a while but whatever do, 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 do what you will um, of those
0: handles you are by far on lie Chess the most So Chess.com
1: or, the most you are
0: by far on Chess.com the most so it, hit Alex up on Chess.com that's
1: right I'm at A underscore X underscore r u i z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please, tell your enemies.